Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. A couple of months ago on this program, we started a new series called Power Pairs. I wanted to sit down with two prominent Minnesotans who have a close relationship and talk to them about their work, the value of their relationship, and how they make each other better. So far in the series, I've talked with longtime best friends and with a married couple. Today, I'm talking with a father-daughter dynamic duo. Now, if you're a parent, you can probably identify with this. We want our children to avoid the pain and suffering that we may have experienced. And we also want to pass down our values, our family culture, and some of what's best about us. The power pair you're about to meet, I think, is a great example of that. David Mira is an award-winning, well-known writer and a third-generation Japanese-American. His most recent book of essays was published earlier this year. It's called The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths and Our American Narratives. David has published almost a dozen books that include two memoirs, a novel, essay collections, and four books of poetry. Most of them deal in some way with race, culture, and American history. He also taught creative writing and literature at the University of Minnesota, St. Olaf College, and and elsewhere. Good morning, David. What a pleasure to meet you. Oh, great to be here. Good to see you here. I also have with me in the studio David's daughter, State Representative Samantha Mercer. I'm sorry, Samantha Sensor Murrah. Samantha just served her first term in the Minnesota House, representing South Minneapolis. She's a DFLer and the first Japanese-American legislator in the state. And she's found her own ways to make sure everyone's stories are told. As a newly elected state representative, she sponsored the bill that requires Minnesota high schools to offer ethnic studies classes. Good morning, Samantha. Thanks for coming in. Nice to meet you as well. Good morning. Really happy to be here, Angela. Now, as the two of you sit next to each other and listen to me describe each of you, you know, what goes through your mind? I imagine there has to be a lot of pride, you know, that that's your baby, David. No, no, I feel very, very proud of Samantha, <laughs> although when she was five years old, she turned to my wife and I and said, stop saying you're proud of me. I know you're proud of me. <laughs> Wow. Wow. So so she was hearing it. She was well, she was paying attention, right? She, yeah, yeah, no, she always had confidence and so that was that's been good. Right. Yes. So, so I do feel very proud right. of her and what she's accomplished. And Samantha, what about you? Um how do you describe this moment, moment sitting next to your your father to be interviewed about individually who you are but how your relationship has strengthened you? Yeah, I mean, I think this is I love this topic, right? And I think that um just the idea of, you know, power pairs especially in the Twin Cities where we live in, you know, a big city, but also such a small world, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm always meeting people with different fun connections. And especially when you know folks who are in different spaces and you make that connection. And, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm at an event or someone looks at my name and then looks at my face and is like, are you David's daughter? Uh, yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh, it make you know, now it makes sense. Like, um, you know, I think both because – while we do very different work, I think there's a lot of intersections in, in the causes that we care about and what we are trying to, you know, promote here in our community. Um, and then also, I'm just told all the time that I look exactly like nice. There is a resemblance. <laughs> that is true. So, David, you have received uh, many awards uh, over the decades for your books and your writing. Uh, and we don't get prizes for parenting, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but it really has to be gratifying to see your daughter in, in many ways living her life in a way that reflects uh, that that her childhood played a big uh, role in in what she views and what she values. Yes. I I think we always um, emphasized 
social justice, mm-hmm. you know, equality and democracy as being values in our family, in part because of our Japanese American heritage. Because both my parents at ages 11 and 15 and their families were imprisoned by the United States government during World War II simply because of their race and ethnicity. Because no Japanese American was ever convicted of any espionage or any fifth column activity. And indeed, they found out 40 years later that the military intelligence had determined that the Japanese American community was not a military threat. But they lied to the public. And the Solicitor General lied in the Supreme Court. He didn't tell the Supreme Court that the military intelligence had found that the community was not a military threat. So I think the idea of of justice and equality under the law has been something of our family value. And David, you grew up um, in a a mostly uh, Jewish Chicago suburb, a mostly white suburb in the 1950s and 60s. What was it like to be, you know, part of one of the very few Asian families in your community? Well, my parents' reaction to the internment camps was in many ways to real... I think unconsciously they did feel like the race and ethnicity had caused them to stand out. So after the war, they tried to assimilate into a white middle-class identity. Mm-hmm. And that's the way they raised me. And I, was, I grew up in this Jewish suburb. My high school was like 85% Jewish. I was in class with Attorney General Merrick Garland. Um, and I, I, a white friend would say to me, I think of you, David, like a white person. And I would go, great, that's what I want to be thought of. And it wasn't until my late 20s, and even though I went through English graduate school, I didn't read any black authors or authors of color in graduate school. And then I began reading black authors, and I realized, oh, I'm not white. I'm never going to be white. Who am I? What does it mean to be a Japanese-American and Asian-American? And that really changed the focus of my writing and what I, I've been writing about race and identity since, you know, my late 20s. Mm-hmm. And Samantha, do you remember hearing these stories as, as you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think that, um, you know, I think my my dad will talk about kind of having some, you know, going through racial identity development as, as we all mm-hmm. do. And I think, you know, um, in his 20s and 30s kind of, coming to the understanding of, like, I am a person of color, I am a Japanese-American, this is what it means, and wanting to really understand more about a history that often was just not talked about in our family, right? Our, our My grandparents, their view is, you know, kind of that's in the past, right? Why do we need to talk about this? Like, let's move on. Um, and so I think, you know, I was born kind of after the place where my dad was asking a lot of questions, trying to better understand that history. And so I think for him, when he was raising myself and my brothers, it was really important to make sure that we understood that history. And I think, you know, he knew that that this history would probably not be told in schools, right? When we talk about the story of World War II and we talk about America's role in that story, right? The Japanese internment camps are, you know, if they are mentioned at all, they're an asterisk, right? Um, and yet, for our family, right, that's that's an incredibly important moment that changed the trajectory, the legacy of our family in this country. And so learning about that history, you know, was really, I think that was a, a value in our family um, and something that he really impressed on us. You know, I think sometimes to the point where my brothers and I would say, like, we know, we, 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 we got it. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I, I also feel lucky, right, because we know that that's a story that probably um, – if he had not pressed on the importance of us, I don't think that 
that we would know. To our listeners, I want you to know that I've discovered another Minnesota power pair who I want you to know about. I'm talking with David Mura, a well-known writer and book author and a third-generation Japanese-American, and David's daughter, State Representative Samantha Sensor Mura. She just served her first term in the Minnesota House representing South Minneapolis. And again, she's the first Japanese-American legislator in the state. And as I talk more with David and Samantha, I want to hear from you, too. We're taking your phone calls. I want to know, how did you learn about your racial and ethnic identity? identity growing up? How was your experience different from your parents' experience? And if you are a parent, how have you raised your child to understand their racial and cultural identity and value it? Uh, The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. And if you have a suggestion for another power pair I should talk to, you can go ahead and send me an email at adavis at npr.org. Samantha, you know, like your father, you're interested in writing and education. And so before you were elected to the state legislature, uh, you were the executive director uh, at a nonprofit uh, called 826MSP. And I know that that's a writing and a tutoring center in Minneapolis that focuses on students of color. Uh, Tell me more about that and and the writing uh, that you're that you were trying to teach to give young people a voice. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and really excited to uplift the work of that amazing organization. You know, I I came to that work really through um, passion for educational equity. Um, and that really stemmed from my own experience um, as a student, uh, as a student of color in Minneapolis public schools growing up where I had some, you know, really amazing experiences, um, great opportunities, and also really saw, you know, the incredible um education opportunity gaps that we have in our schools. Um, And so from that work, have been involved with education for over a decade. Um, I lived uh, away, uh, not in Minnesota, for about 10 years and um, was able to, I think, six or seven years ago, move back to Minnesota and really, you know, wanted to be grounded in the community that I grew up in and really give back to the community that gave so much to me. Um, I was really... um, uh, honored to um, become the executive director of 826MSP, which is a youth writing organization that really is about amplifying and uplifting the voices of students of color um, in Minneapolis, St. Paul public schools. Um, and so I was able to build a youth writing center in the community that I grew up in. Um, I was able to build a youth writing center in the high school that I went to, South High School, um, really, you know, based on the understanding that young people's voices are powerful and young people have something to say. Um, we, you know, something that we would talk about in that organization is every young person has a story inside them. Um, Um, And every young person who comes into your classroom has a story. Um, And so we would work with students on developing that story, writing that story, developing their writing skills. Um, But something really special that I think the organization does is also publishing. So making sure that student voices are elevated. So they are elevated, you know, off maybe just a a line of, you know, composition paper, right? And they are published into beautiful books. We work with an amazing um, publishing company here locally, Wiseink, um, who helps Mm -hmm. to publish their books and the sold in bookstores and stores, you know, throughout the Twin Cities and online. Um, You know, we published um, an anthology of indigenous voices from Minneapolis and an anthology of black student voices from Minneapolis, you know, making sure that students who are often on the margins, right, that their voices are are centered with the hopes that it will influence community members, policymakers all over. Um, you know, I think myself, I've always had a, an interesting relationship with writing, you know, coming from from a writer. Um, and 
you know, it is interesting the ways that um, our work has has intersected, right? I um, I call myself a, a burgeoning writer, someone who's interested in writing, um, a little bit scared of the actual like publishing and putting it out. Um, but the ability to help students tell their stories and help elevate those voices, you know, I definitely think is is influenced by growing up with mm-hmm. a writer. And have you, did you see a change in some of these students, just how they saw themselves, their self-confidence, or just how it affected how, you know, decisions that they decided to make as young people? Yeah, I mean, I came to this work because I, you know, worked with students in a variety of roles, you know, taught a variety of subjects. And what I really saw was that when students were engaged in creative writing, when students were able to talk about um, their life events, their um, ideas and opinions on things, it could really change a student. You know, I remember I was working um, in San Francisco and I was working uh, on a project where we would go into classes, seventh grade classes, and help students write about a time in their life where they experienced a change, right? And that's a really Mm -hmm. broad, open-ended question. And so sometimes the change would be, I got a dog, right? Sometimes the change would be, I made the basketball team, you know, but sometimes the change would be, my father went to jail, right? And this is the experience that I have. Um, And something I'll never forget is there was a student in that class um, who, you know, when we went into the classroom, the teacher had told us, watch out for him. Like, he's not going to do anything. He's going to just create kind of a ruckus. You know, basically, you can ignore him, right? Um, and this student got incredibly, you know, involved in wanting to tell the story, wanting to tell the story about a time when his sister got pregnant and the way that that affected his family. Mm. Um, You know, and then we did some evaluations at the end uh, where a student, you know, you ask a question, how was this course for you? What do you take away from it? Um, You know, and I would joke at the time that we would get back maybe 20 pieces of paper that all just said IDK, which, you know, stands for I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> then I think anyone who has tried to do evaluations with middle schoolers will know, like, sometimes you don't get anything. Um, but uh, I remember that this particular student, I looked at their evaluation and said, you know, how did this course impact you? How did it change you? And he said, I felt I let go of something that was inside me, right? Mm-hmm. And so this idea Ooh. that we all have stories yeah. and some of them are really heavy. And if the classroom can be a place to bring those stories out, um, then that's the work that we that we need to be doing. And I think that mm. that can unlock something in, in every student. How does that hit you to hear that, uh, that when young people talk about, I think I let something out. I'm thinking of young David and what yeah. you were looking to, to let out. Well, I, I think that writing is so, especially creative writing, is mm-hmm. so important because it gives people a chance to tell their own stories. It gives people just a chance to center their own lives. And I I think this is important just on an individual basis because this young man suddenly was able to examine something that, you know, an issue of how his sister's pregnancy affected their family. And so many children grow up feeling that their lives don't matter, right, that they're in the margins of society. And suddenly somebody comes up and says, no, write your story. Your story is important, mm-hmm. right? And I've seen this. I've taught at so many organizations which have tried to center the writings of writers of color. And that is so important. I mean, the cultural critic Jeff Chang says cultural change precedes political change. Mm-hmm. And he says, what do artists and writers do? They tell the untold. They hear the unheard. They show the unseen. Even if it's painful. Even if it's painful. And, you know, we're engaged in this war right now, uh, uh, conflict. You know, it's something like Governor DeSantis, you know, 
deemed the African-American AP Studies course, which is the college course that they teach in high schools, um, and it was an African-American studies course. Now, DeSantis is not an African-American scholar. He doesn't have a PhD in African-American studies. He's not an African-American writer. He's not written a novel about African-Americans. And yet he feels perfectly qualified to say the course lacked educational value. And in, in my book, Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, I emphasize how white narratives are generally considered to be valid, true, official, and uh, objective. So whereas black narratives are tend to be considered as invalid, subjective, false or suspicious, or unofficial. And so DeSantis is working off that same playbook. And when people say the past is really in the past, if you think about it, when the Africans came here and were enslaved, they were forbidden to teach their own culture. They were forbidden to teach their own history. They were forbidden to teach their own stories. What is DeSantis doing but doing that in 2023 to African Americans now? So when you say the traditions of our racist past are in the past, they're not in the past. They're still here in the present. To our listeners, I want you to know we're talking to another Minnesota power pair. I'm talking with David Murrah, a well-known writer and book author and a third-generation Japanese-American, and David's daughter, State Representative Samantha Sincer-Murrah. She just served her first term in the Minnesota House representing South Minneapolis. And we're taking your phone calls. I want to hear your stories. How did you learn about your racial and ethnic identity growing up? How was your experience different from your parents' experience? And if you're a parent, how have you raised your child to understand their racial and cultural identity and value it. The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. David and Samantha, I have lots of questions, but so do our listeners. So let's uh, open the phone lines and talk to one of our listeners who's calling in. In St. Paul, Stan is on the phone. Good morning, Stan, and and thank you for for joining the conversation. Yes, hello. Hey, David, this is uh, Stan Kusnoki. How are you doing? Hi, Stan. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, you know, I just wanted to comment, uh, you know, I think you kind of touched on it, but growing up, being Japanese-American, uh, third generation, um, I had a real schizophrenic childhood. You know, my parents, like you said, wanted me to be more American than American, but they also wanted me to to be Japanese, you know, get a get a good Japanese wife. And, and, and so I was very conflicted growing up and very confused. Um, and then uh, I, I got into the Asian American um, Writers Group, uh, part of part of the Loft uh, Asian American um, Writing Group, and and so I wrote uh, what I, I found out about the camps through, through over here, hearing somebody griping at one of the you know Japanese New Year's parties where we had you know just the whole community over. And so I wrote that, but my parents didn't know that. And so they came to the the reading at the end, and I wrote my perception of their lives in the camps. And afterwards, my mother said, well, you know, that's true, but it really didn't happen that way. And she would drop little tidbits. And so after that, she found a way, because she couldn't talk about it, but she found me as her spokesman. And I w- wondered if, if you felt any of that in, in your work. 
Um, not really wouldn't buy. I, I think my mother did not like my writing because <laughs> she was very private and she didn't mm-hmm. want people writing about the family. And I think, you know, in certain ways that sort of reflects a Japanese-American cultural, you know, value, which is you don't tell your private business in public. Mm-hmm. My dad had wanted to be a writer and had not gone on to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so he he was sort of proud of my work, and he's he's read everything that I've written. Whereas my mom, who passed away last year, did not read read my books. Was it just too painful for her? Um, I think it was just it, it. She didn't always like the portrait I painted of them, but I think it was also just, you know, I write about difficult subjects. Right. I write about race. I write about sexuality. I write about. Um, this past, which they wanted to sort of just say it's all the way in the past. You know, when I asked my mom about the camps, being in the internment camps, she said, well, David, it was so long ago. I don't remember. Right. And uh, and she was very typical of a lot of their generation. And they took it partly, I think, as a mark of shame, even though they had done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as if people wanted to hear their stories about the camps. And then it, it, the it, uh, Japanese cultural value is to just endure and not complain. Um, there's a word gaman, which is endure. There's a word shog- phrase shogunai. It can't be helped. So the attitude was, you can't. we couldn't do anything about this. Let's just move on from it. And so I understand why she why she felt like that. In certain ways, I have to say Sam had some trouble sometimes with my writing about you know private stuff in public. What concerns you about your father's writing about uh, race and identity and history? Yeah, I mean, you know, so there's a phrase I don't remember who said it, but you know, when a writer is born into the family, that's the end of the family. <laughs> yeah, that's Ch- Chesel Milos, the uh, Polish-Lithuanian poet, you know, Nobel Prize-winning poet, said that. And I, and you know, the idea is there is that every family, you know, contains secrets, privacies, yes. and the job of a writer is to illuminate those. You yes. know, and so, um, you know, I've heard my dad talk about that phrase um, in relation to his family of origin, right, and mm-hmm. how it, you know, his writing has you know, disrupted some of the secrecy and bring things into the light in ways that are both, you know, painful, but also, I think, you know, helpful, right, and can help people move on. You know, I've always asked the question, what does it mean to be born into a family (laughs) with a writer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it is, I think, the interesting thing is that both my father and I, I think, would consider ourselves introverts, right, who I think um, in <laughs> in many ways are, you know, if, if we're at a large gathering, are not going to be the first people to, like, speak out or, or get up and also have a very public side to mm-hmm. ourselves, right? Um, and I think, you know, we we both kind of struggle and talk about what it means to be very public people when some of our inclinations are also to be a little bit more introverted, to be a little more private, and yet feel called to speak out on issues that feel really important to us. And so the feedback to some of the books that you've written over the years, uh, David, do you hear from a lot of Japanese Americans? Who do you hear from when when people want to reach out to you to respond to some of your writings? Um, I hear from all sorts of different types of people. I think there was... You know, when I wrote a book about race and sexuality and Japanese-American identity, I think some people in the community had problems with that. It was about a book which was probably about 20 years too early. 
because people were not really ready to talk about issues of sexuality. They're barely, barely in the community um, ready to talk about the internment camps, right? That only happened really in the Japanese-American community in the late 80s when there was a movement to um, get an apology and a redress from the United States government. And many of my parents' generation, for the first time in the late 80s, spoke in public about what they went through. Mm. And it was almost like a community catharsis. And they would have these meetings because they were gathering information to present to Congress. And they they would have therapists there and people would mm. come and make testimony about what their experience was in the camps. And suddenly this pain the laying out. And, and anger that people had been feeling for four decades mm-hmm. came out. And so my memoir, first memoirs, came only in the early 90s. And it was still a time when I think the community was somewhat reluctant to talk about these issues. So what do you want? You know, uh, thirty, forty years ago, when you're, you know, you and your wife are having kids, what did you want to be different for your children growing up than what you experienced um, in terms of coming to terms with your own racial and ethnic identities? Well, certainly, I wanted them to know about their Japanese American past, their Japanese American history. But to me, it was important that they knew the histories of all the people in America. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, for instance, right now. Moms for Liberty wants to ban the story of Ruby Bridges. Now, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old black girl who desegregated the New Orleans school in 1960. A child. A child. You know, she was a first grader, a six-year-old. And she had to pass through crowds of jeering, shouting adults with signs and some spitting. And Moms for Liberty says, oh, this is going to hurt our white children. Well, that's just absurd. Because my, you know, Sam read that book, and she, she's half white. It wasn't like she read the book and caused her to hate her white side. No, she was inspired by Ruby Bridges. She was inspired by the courage of Ruby Bridges. She was inspired by her fight for social justice. And I think that's what Moms for Liberty fears, is that their six-year-old or seven- or eight-year-old white children will look at Ruby Bridges and go, I should admire this person. This person can be my hero, and they don't want them to identify with Ruby Bridges. And Samantha, you are biracial, mm-hmm. right? Your your father's Japanese American, mm-hmm. your mother is white. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like for you as a child coming to terms with your racial identity? Yeah, you know, and I I guess I'm also just kind of thinking about the larger conversation that I think a lot of states are having, including Minnesota, about you know what does it mean to teach true histories? What does it mm-hmm. mean to teach accurate histories? And you know, a story that comes to mind is actually a story you know from from our family, which is that um, my father talks about you know he's ten years older than his um, youngest sibling, right? And his parents mm-hmm. kind of you know had different ways of parenting, right, based on growing older. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and one of the things that he talks about is having a conversation with his younger sister where he talked about his father using physical punishment and his his sister said, that never happened. My dad would never do that. You know, and Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we're having conversations about what it means to be a person of color in America versus what it means to grow up as a white person, it kind of feels like that, right? It feels like they're saying, well, my parent would never do that, right? You know, we like, do you know that um, during World War II, Japanese and um, Americans were interned? Well, my parent would never do that, right? My country would never do that. Um, So this kind of idea that there is 
gaps in knowledge or sometimes kind of amnesia about all of the things mm-hmm. that had happened. You know, and I think I, like many biracial people, you know, kind of grew up with both of those ideas present for us, right? That we know some of the painful histories, um, but that we're also, you know, growing up in a dominant culture that is telling a certain story about America and is saying, and and you are part of this. You know, I think for me, um, a lot of my biracial identity was really influenced just by the way that I was read, right? And so I, growing up, people did not know that I was white, right? People just saw me and assumed that I was Asian. You know, what I got a lot was, what are you, right? Which we kind of know is code for why are you, why are you not white? <laughs> I have a lot of friends who are biracial who who tell the story that people will say verbally say, "What are you? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like when someone says that to you?" You know, I think um, I've I've had different experiences with that, right? I've also, you know, I think just from being an educator and being a teacher, I get that a lot from students, right? What are mm-hmm. you? And I and from a young person, it's much more I'm much more able to approach that. Um, question empathetically, right? Of like, oh, you have curiosity. You're just trying to understand something about me that you think can help place me that, you know, you can help me, um, yeah, help better put me in in your world in some way. You know, um, I will say that there are times where that conversation is very frustrating. I Mm -hmm. actually, a few years ago, um, Brought, bought a sweatshirt that says, don't ask me where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, in their question, you know, people will ask me where I'm from, and I'll say Chicago, and they'll go, no, where are you really from, right? And they want to know what my ethnic background is. In many ways, that's just a harmless question. But on the other hand, my grandfather came here in 1898. My family's been here for a century and a quarter. When will I just be look people People look at me and just go, you're an American. Your your family's been here for three generations, now four generations, now five. Sam, Sam just had a son two years ago, right? And so this idea, and in the idea of telling American history, which I go over in the stories whiteness tells itself, it's not just the things that America has done wrong around the issues of race. It is also the contributions of people of color. I uh, co-produced, narrated, and wrote this documentary uh, for uh, Twin Cities Public Television, Armed with Language. And it was about the Japanese-American soldiers who studied Japanese language at the Military Intelligence Service at Camp Savage and Fort Snelling during World War II. And at the beginning of the war, America realized, oh, we have white people who speak Italian. We have white people who speak German. We don't have any white people speak Japanese. What are we going to do? And they realized that they had to go to the Japanese-American population. But they also realized they had put 120,000 Japanese-Americans in prison. So they had to go into these camps and try to recruit Japanese-Americans to be part of this military language school. And these men and about 150 women went out and, and they did translated captured documents and messages. They uh, served on the battlefield as interrogators and guides. And MacArthur's chief of intelligence in the Pacific Theater, General Willoughby, said that these Japanese-American linguists shortened the war in the Pacific by two years and saved a million American lives. Now, people don't know the story about this. They don't know that these Japanese-Americans shortened the war in the Pacific by two years, saved a million American lives, which I always say, which means there are racist and anti-immigrant 
white people going around today who are actually alive because these Japanese Americans helped save their fathers and grandfathers. And so our diversity is our strength. And the Navajo Code Talkers, the contributions of African American soldiers during World War II, all of these things are, you know, what what makes this country great. It's not it doesn't make us weaker. And people need to realize this, and they only realize this if you're told our history. And if we have writers <laughs> and, and educators who help share the word. Samantha, I, I really want to know, let's talk about running for office, uh, your interest in becoming an elected official. Uh, what was going on in your life last year that made you decide to run for office? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be a little bit, you know, I don't know if crazy is the right word, right? But um, to to run for office, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to tell the story of why I decided to run. You know, I think part of that story starts before I was even born, right, about what we've talked about, um, the experience of my family in the U.S., you know, the what that really taught me about how important it is to have people in positions of leadership who can see the full humanity of all groups, even in times of war war in times of crisis. You know, um, I think that there are the experiences that I had um, as a student growing up in Minneapolis public schools, wanting to make sure that students of color um, had equitable educational um, experiences, outcomes. Um, and, you know, and then I was really influenced by the events of 2016, you know, as I a lot of, I think, my colleagues were, right? What happened in 2016? So Trump was elected <laughs> president, um, you know, and at that time, I was not living here. I was in graduate school. Um, and I, but I was hearing a lot about, you know, my home state on the radio, um, particularly in, in the weeks and months leading up to the election about, you know, Minnesota, this, you know, Minnesota has not voted for a Republican, um, for president in a very long time, but that it was a very close race. And I remember, um, there was actually a, um, This American Life story that I heard just a couple weeks before, um, the election that really uh, influenced me. And it was about kind of the changing face of the Republican Party um, in re- in reaction to Trump. And it was a story from St. Cloud um, about how some um, community members in St. Cloud, you know, I think were really influenced by some of the rhetoric that Trump had about build a wall, keep immigrants out. Um, and there was, um, f- you know, they had, they played footage from, um, I think it was a St. Cloud city council meeting where there are people saying we need some kind of Muslim ban in St. Cloud. We need to basically make sure that Somali immigration to St. Cloud stops. Um, and, you know, I heard that and I that I was, you know, that's my state. That's where I grew up. And, and that doesn't feel like the state that I know, um, you know, and then the results of the election, you know, Trump almost won Minnesota. And just this kind of feeling of like, what is happening to this state that I grew up in that I know and love? You felt a sense of urgency. Yeah. At the same time, really locally, um, in 2016, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar was elected um, to the Minnesota State House in the district that I actually grew up in, right? Um, And then, you know, being both really um, inspired by what was happening in local politics and also really scared about what was happening on the national scale. Um, so I decided to move back to Minnesota in 2017, you know, got pretty involved just in local politics, really because I was um, inspired by so many amazing women of color that were stepping up to lead, who I think were helping to broaden the idea for both myself and others of like, what what are the credentials that you actually need to be an elected official, right? And I think traditionally, we've thought that you had to be 
a white male lawyer, right? And then I was watching amazing leaders lead who who had none of those credentials, right? But were able to offer um, a different and really needed perspective. Um, I think the last thing that influenced me is, you know, six months before I decided to run for office, I became a parent. Um, and I had um, a son who was born five weeks early. I had developed pre- um, preeclampsia. Um, and so my, you know, I had a, a fairly, you know, um, a little bit of a dangerous birth. And then my son spent some time in the NICU, you know. And so at that time, I was the executive director of a nonprofit. And I we were a small nonprofit. Um, and I worked with our staff and board to be the first person to take paid family leave, right? We And it was really important to me because we were an organization that worked with young people. I wanted to make sure that all of our employees, including myself, you know, could could build their families, right? Because that felt really aligned with the values of our organization. And, you know, I also knew the the budget that we had, right, as a small nonprofit and that mm-hmm. for someone to take paid leave um, was really hard on the organization with a small staff and, you know, just kind of learning about what the state laws were that, you know, we were a small organization, so we actually didn't legally need to offer our employees anything, right? Um, and that there was no financial support to be able to offer it for employees. And then, you know, I had this traumatic birth where I was out five weeks before I thought I was going to be. I had to spend time with my son in the NICU. You know, I was hearing from NICU nurses that the most important thing you can do, I was, you know, my son was trying to breastfeed at that time, was just be with him all the time, try to breastfeed all the time. And I watched and I saw that other parents were not able to be there in the Mm -hmm. NICU. Um, And I remember, you know, a nurse made a comment to me, you know, saying kind of, comparing me to other parents and she said oh you know you like you're so good you care about your son you know and then i knew from having conversations not that i cared you had the ability i had paid family leave right Right. and so you know Mm -hmm. i remember it would be 5 p.m and we would see other parents come in right because they had been at work all day um and i knew just kind of how emotionally Mm -hmm. hard that situation was for me i can't imagine how it would be if i did not have the paid family leave policy and so you know there is that image of of NICU beds that don't have parents next to them because people can't take time off work um, really kind of made me question, how are we supporting working families, you know, in the state, in this country? Um, and, and what does it mean to be able to show up for people in their most vulnerable times? And so, um, you know. So life happened to you. Life happened. And you're like, I need to be uh, on the side of the fence that is actively working to improve lives. So I, I want to make sure we talk, too, about the one of the first things that you did or really focused on mm-hmm. when you uh, got into office, into the state legislature. You sponsored the ethnic studies bill that passed. So mm-hmm. tell everybody what it does and why was it important uh, for you to, to see this pass? Yeah. You know, and so this, this bill really comes out of my own experience as a student, right? You know, I remember that I was in a world studies class um, in ninth grade and we were getting to the end of the year and um, we had really been focusing on just Europe, right? Just Mm -hmm. European history. And so I stayed after class to ask our teacher, you know, when are we going to learn about other countries? And my teacher at that time told me, well, you can learn about other countries when you get to college. Um, And so, you know, I think for a lot of people of color, that's the experience, right? Is that we have to wait until we can enroll in a college African-American history class. And and the reality is that when we do that, when we create curriculum that does not reflect our students, we lose people, right? Those students drop out because they don't see a place for them in the school. They don't see how school can be connected to their everyday lives. And so that really, for me, is the impetus to make sure that we have a curriculum that is reflective. Um, you know, something I talk about is this concept in education of windows and mirrors, right? And that the best education, you know, provides a mirror for you to see yourself, to learn about your own history 
and a window to be able to see and learn about other histories, other cultures. So now high schools uh, across the state are required to have some type of course yep. or courses that teach ethnic History. Yeah. So um, the bill by uh, 2026 requires um, all high schools to offer an ethnic studies course, you know, and the importance of that is really, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul, St. Paul public schools already have a graduation requirement for ethnic studies. Um, but we heard from students throughout the state, right, who said, I really want this course, um, whether they were in Worthington, whether they were on the Iron Range, right, all across mm-hmm. Minnesota. And so making sure that all students have access to a reflective curriculum was the goal of that bill. Right. And David, as you're watching this, what yeah, were your well, thoughts? I, I wanted, Sam's reaction to the prejudice against Muslim Somali Americans is very strong in the Japanese American community. After 9-11, the JCL, the Japanese American Citizens League, was among the first groups to say this should not be used to spur anti-Arab, anti-Muslim hate. Um, the Trump administration had used the the imprisonment of Japanese Americans as a precedent for their Muslim bans. When President Trump was asked about the internment camps, he said, I don't know, you would have had to been there, implying that there was some military necessity. But what it meant is that he did not know the history of Japanese. He did not know that actually President Reagan had signed an apology to the Japanese American community saying that there was no military necessity for the internment camps, and that the real reason for the internment camps was racism, wartime hysteria, and a failure of leadership. Trump did not know that a legal researcher had found that the military intelligence had determined that the Japanese Americans were not a threat and lied to the public. He did not know the contributions of Japanese American soldiers to the war effort in World War II. So it is this ignorance of our history which causes to not see the present and not to see Somali, Muslim Somali Americans as Americans like everybody else, just like Japanese Americans were considered not American during World War II. And one of the things I think that my wife and I felt was, you know, I grew up in a suburb which went to high school, which was 3,200. The only people of color there were 10 Asians, and I was related to five of them. (laughs) You know, Sam and her siblings went to South High, which is in Sam's district. And at the time, South High was 20% Native American, 20% East African, Somali, Ethiopian, Eritrean, and Black American, 20% Latino American, 10% Asian American, and 30% European American. So (laughs) this is... The, the high school that my – and we wanted our kids to grow to a, grow up in a diverse neighborhood so that they would know people of all different races and ethnicities, so that they would know – they would not only see this diversity of America, but they would know how to communicate and relate to a diverse population, which is really essential for America to work now. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, I want to make sure we talk about your your new book uh, that came out this year. The story's whiteness tells itself: racial myths in our American narratives. That's the title. You write about Philando Castile, um, and I, I, I want you to remind our listeners who Philando Castile was, and, and why. I want to know why did you decide to start off your book of essays with this story? Well, Philando Castile was murdered by a policeman on Larpenter Avenue. Um, not more than two miles from my house. 
And so his death um, at the hands of Officer Geronimo Yanez um, was something that struck all the Twin Cities, and I knew people who knew Flandre Castile. But as I began writing about him, I understood— And that officer was acquitted. Yeah, he was acquitted. And I understood that the order to understand what happened to Flandre Castile, we have to go back in American history. Flandre Castile was stopped 50 times in 10 years by the police. His mother says it was more like 80 times. Now, if you ask a typical white audience, how many times have you been stopped by the police in the last 10 years? You're rarely going to get over five times. You're never going to get over 10. And he was stopped 50 to 80 times. This racial profiling that he went through goes all the way back to slavery and the ways that African-Americans were regarded. It goes back certainly to post-slavery reconstruction where there were studies designed to prove that black people were inherently criminal. Whereas when white people committed crimes, what they did was, oh, this was just an individual. Every time a black person committed crime, they were representative of the race. Mm -hmm. When white people committed crimes, it was explained by sociologists as due to social – essentially, they, they were poor. David, we just have a minute left. So I just yeah. – again, why did you so, want to so start it's, with this It's story? so important for us to know this history and the ways that we, we distort our history, we tell lies about our history – we don't want to deal with the issues of slavery, with what happened during Reconstruction, and we leave out the narratives and experience of African Americans and other people of color, and you can't understand the story of America unless you tell these stories. Our time is up for the hour. I'm uh, grateful I've had a chance to get each of you get to know each of you better. We've been talking with our latest power pair, a father-daughter dynamic duo, as I call you. Our guest today, David Murra, well-known writer and uh, a, a publisher, uh, or has several, had several books published. His most recent book of essays published this year called The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths in Our American Narratives, and State Representative Samantha Censor Murrah uh, just served her first term in the Minnesota House. Uh, she's a DFLer and the first Japanese-American legislator in the state. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. And again, if you have suggestions for another power pair I should talk to, send me an email at adavis at npr.org. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.